0: Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. I mean, this is bullshit. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window.
1: Welcome back to the last episode of the War on Drugs, oh, right? My, episode my 32, 3.32. 3. 32. Gotcha. 32 hours we will have done yeah. on the War on Drugs. <laughs> Holy shit.
2: Maybe we should have just did three hours of just smoking pot and just talking to each other and recording that. That might have been the Giggling. way to go. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. I'm a giggler. Yeah.
1: Well... Where are we? We're, we're in 1992 yeah. in our story. Um, in July 28th of 1992, the, the biggest of journalistic guns turned on the drug war. The New York Times, which, as we've seen over the course of the show, has participated in uh, running the worst kind of bullshit. Right. Unfact checked propaganda mm-hmm. uh, about marijuana and drug users for the previous uh, 60 years at this point um, finally started to change their tune. Why? Um, well, we'll get to why, okay. but right. in July 1992, on the front page, they ran a story that said, Some think. The war on drugs is being waged on the wrong front. Ooh, that is a departure. Now, this was part of a series on George Bush's record as president coming up to the uh, end of his first term. Right. Uh, And they wrote, uh, Mr. Bush has poured more and more money into tactics that over the last 20 years have repeatedly failed to change the course of the campaign against drugs. Ooh. So finally, the media is starting to make sense about this. They're starting to question it. They're starting to... Now, you ask the question, why? Yeah. And I think that's a good question. I think that um, things are changing in America in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Cold War is over. Right. There's a sense of euphoria, I think, um, around the world, not just in the United States, but I remember this. The wall comes down, Mm -hmm. Gorbachev collapses the Soviet Union. I was like 21, 22. I remember thinking, holy shit, we might actually survive (laughs) as a generation because as we've talked about in our Cold War show, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I believed we were going to die. At any minute, there was going to be full-out thermonuclear war. We were all going to die. <laughs> right. Um, either I- in the war or in the aftermath of a nuclear winter. All of a sudden, the Cold War seems to be over, and we were like, oh, my God, yeah. this is awesome. This is amazing. Um, and I think around about then... Um, you know the, the 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 high point of human civilization happened. That, that song came out in 1987, right? Rick oh, Astley, okay. Never okay. Gonna Give You Up, and I think that's what ended the Cold War. <laughs> um, people came together around the world in their united hate for that song, and they said, you know what? We have more in common than we have
2: as differences. Let's right? put it all behind us. Yeah. We all hate that song. Let's, we all hate Rick Astley. Let's put that song and hate... Behind us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you think about the people that were um, journalists. Let's say people that were in their late 20s in 1992. They were born in the 60s. Right. Um, you, you start to see this baby boomer generation um, start to hit adulthood. People born in the late 40s through to the 60s. Uh, they're the people that are in their late 20s to late 40s. They have done drugs or they know people that have done drugs.
2: Right.
1: There's a generational change happening um, that comes as a result, I think, of just people that grew up in the 60s or around the 60s. You know, if you were born in the late 60s or in the early 70s, like you and I were, your, your parents probably did drugs or their friends did drugs Mm-hmm. Um, or your friends did drugs. Yeah. And, you know, like I had I, – I didn't do drugs growing up. My parents, my dad, you know, was my both my parents were chain smokers. I don't think they did anything else. I did find out later in life that my dad had tried weed a few times, but like me, it did nothing for him. I remember he and I having a conversation about that before he mm-hmm. died, um, that we tried weed and it hadn't really worked yeah. for us. but Didn't take Um we, yeah, and and he was a smoker, so I don't know why it didn't work for him. For me, I just coughed my lungs up. But, um, but I had friends growing up uh, in high school that smoked a lot of weed, and um, they were great guys. Like yeah, they, they were my they were my friends. They were you know? evil. They, they, yeah, they smoked weed on the weekends. Uh, yeah, no, they were. In fact, they were the they were the coolest guys I knew. I know not, not like you know fucking the Fonzie cool, but they were my friends. <laughs> right? They they. I liked hanging out with them um, they were fun they were funny so I saw that it didn't turn them into right crazed m- murderers um, you have to be you have to be president of the United States to do that um, <laughs> they were so you know you, I, I think enough generations of people had grown up going you know what the stories that I hear in the media don't jibe with what I've seen mm.
2: right First in scene. real life yeah
1: yeah, my my friends, my family, myself, if you're smoking, it's like yeah, it doesn't make any sense, you know? It's just uh it's bullshit, really. Yeah. It's, it's it's bullshit. So I think it's a generational thing. I think that's part of it. I think the Rodney King thing was a big part of it. I think the end of the Cold War and the euphoria after the end of the Cold War was part of it.
2: What about you? What do you think changed? I I think the big thing for me is that and and this might sound obvious or whatever but i think by the time 1991 92 comes along people have had a really good long dose of the war on drugs and and if you're black in this country or if you're your hispanic um it's like it's what's that old thing about when uh, when they made um, same sex marriage uh, legal? It's like you know, twenty years ago you couldn't imagine it, but now everybody knows someone who's gay or everybody is related to someone who's gay because all these people have come out, and so you know you now know it's not a big deal. So by the time we get to nineteen ninety one. There's been, it's been going on long enough where everybody knows a person who's in jail. They're related to a person who's in jail. They know someone whose who's life and their family's lives have been destroyed because of this war on drugs. And so I think at a point, people just are getting, I mean, it, it does take a while because it is a grassroots thing, it is a groundswell, but people are just getting pissed. They're getting angry, they're getting resentful, and they're starting to talk about that out loud and they're not just, um, you know, uh, touching their forelock to the white authority. And so I think that's sets the ground for the possibility of change, at the very least, a possibility of discussions. And when Clinton comes into office, I think people might have been projecting that hope that something might be different this time when he comes into office. And I I think it was just truly a groundswell where people are going, this hasn't worked, this is horrible, something has to give.
1: I don't think, though, that the people writing for the New York Times necessarily have uh, no. friends and family that are black No, and I'm in not jail. talking about
2: that. I'm talking about blacks, black Americans.
1: Yeah, but why is that going to change the tenor of the New York Times?
2: Well, see, that's what I wanted to get at earlier. So my, you and I have got basically gone off the premise that the vast majority of stuff that's put out, it's put out to increase circulation to get people to buy your uh, your um, your newspaper, so you can then charge for ads. It's all about money, and there's and I don't know if that's good or bad or evil, but that's the way it is. And so, if these people are starting to write anti uh, articles uh, going against drugs or saying that the war on drug is. Um, hurting blacks and then it's not fair then maybe they perceive that the market is out there to hear that kind of thing i don't literally i don't think that they were trying to lead the charge i don't think they were trying to turn the corner on this uh culture war i think they were just sensing what was out on the street and they were marketing their articles to to the perceptions of a lot of americans at that point that that's my mm. take on why they started doing that mm. Mm. what's yours yeah, look, I, I, I told you before,
1: I think it's just a generational thing. I think a lot of yeah. uh, people uh, who were you know, in, in positions of, of power and authority and, and um, in the media at that stage are growing up mm-hmm. surrounded by positive drug stories or at least neutral drug stories, friends and family, and rock and roll, man. We, by the early 90s, the people who were in a position of power um, had grown up uh, listening to the rock and roll of the of the Beatles from mm-hmm. the sixties and and Willie Nelson and and they're like you know what the Beatles are fucking cool and the Beatles smoke drugs so right. yeah like yeah Keith Richards man like He's these are the right coolest now. people ever right. they've did drugs uh, <laughs> you know what's what's the big deal right we want we want more of that yeah. um, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks was still around. Bill Hicks was doing his routines. Um, I think Bill died. When did Bill died, Like, 96. Anyway. Yeah. Um, then Clinton got elected in 1992, and as you said, um, like, he was a child of the rock and roll generation, the yeah. drug generation. Played Famously, he ad- yeah. he admitted he smoked pot but said he didn't inhale, which right. that right there. Should have been the tip-off that this guy is it's a fucking bullshit yeah. artist. Yeah. Yeah. Like when he said that. Splitting here we go. Hands. Let's see. Let's see if I can play this clip. On. A time or two, and
2: I, when I was in England, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and didn't inhale, and never tried it again, and didn't inhale, and didn't inhale, and
1: didn't inhale. God,
0: <laughs> <I can't
1: laughs> what that was like. I mean, technically, I could say I didn't inhale either because I coughed my lungs up. Right. Maybe that's what he—that's maybe what happened to him. You know, right. he tried it, he but coughed, and
2: you know. we both know that he was lying and trying to split the difference.
1: Yeah, listen—if yeah. anyone is high most of the time, being married to Hillary, <laughs> it's the only way you stay married it's to Hillary. you to be it. high, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so. Famously he said that, um, one, just the the, the first of many lies he would tell while he was in office. But I think people on the other side of the drug war were hopeful. Everyone knew that marijuana, not crack or cocaine or heroin, was politically the most important legal drug. Mm-hmm. doesn't kill people who use it doesn't spawn gun battles in city streets right. it doesn't right. enrich foreign drug lords or inspire women to em- abandon their babies or but words. without the marijuana ban right America's drug problem would have been tiny yeah there were there were about 11 million regular users of illicit drugs in the United States in 1992 mm. but only 2 million of those were using crack or cocaine or heroin, the harder stuff. Right. The rest were all using marijuana. If you if you made marijuana legal, wow. 2 million out of 300 million, like no one's even going to notice. Right. Um, of those 2 million, about only 350,000 used cocaine every day.
2: But I just have to ask real quick. So if you go from having... From 11 million criminals to 2 million criminals, yeah, that's good for the families, that's good for the communities, that's good for the individual people or whatever. Maybe they'll straighten their lives out or try it and move on, or they'll do pod on a semi-regular basis and have a normal life. But like we said before, what about all those cops? What about all those task forces, the juries, the judges, the uh, lawyers, the um. The FBI, I mean, you're talking about a billion-dollar industry that would change. Even though it's going to help the people, it's not good for the institutions. And so that's why it hasn't, one of the reasons why it hasn't gone anywhere yet, because it's feeding the machine.
1: I think that's part of it. I think it's also, as I said in our last episode, um, the problem for a politician is even if you and I'm sure a lot of them did, smoked marijuana yourself, had friends who smoked it, you knew there was no problem with it. You can't say that publicly.
2: Who's going to be the first? Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly, because all of your opponents, even in your own party, let alone the uh, opposing parties, are going to come after you as being soft on drugs. And if you're a politician, all you care about is (laughs) getting elected, staying elected, and, and filling your bank account. Yeah. And preparing your, you know, uh, post-political career. Now, some, like Kurt Schmoke, got away with it. fuck it. But I think the majority of them uh, didn't believe they could speak out about this and survive politically.
2: Uh, Absolutely. Um, Can we talk about Joe Biden for a second? Because... He was on the news two or three, four days ago, and he said that he is the most qualified person in America to be the next president. And so I feel like okay. he needs to be taken down a peg or two. So just before Clinton wins the election, Dan Baum, who's one of his books is what we've been using for one of our sources for the series. He has got a hold of, uh, I think, Joe Biden's report. Uh, he's, he's reading over um Uh, Joe Biden, who was a part of the Judiciary Committee, and he has written a report critiquing Bush's drug strategy. So Bush is in and out in four years. He hasn't really changed anything, and everybody's bitching about the war on drugs. Well, Biden gets a hold of it, and Biden writes his report, and his report is entitled, uh, Has It Worked? And in it, he pretty much says no. And the reason he doesn't think that the Bush drug strategy worked was basically three reasons, even though it's a 194-page report. He says Bush did not spend enough on law enforcement. Bush wasn't tough enough on those addicted to drugs. Bush didn't give the military enough power and money to fight illegal drugs. So here's a guy that I think has a decent chance of uh, getting nominated by the Democrats to be a... The Democratic nominee for the next presidential election. And I just don't want anybody to forget that he was one of the biggest cunts when it comes to the drug war that he's saying Bush didn't do enough, didn't come down hard enough on these people. And this is in 1992 or three or something like that. So the point is, I I just don't want, I just don't want this to be glossed over because no one else is going to talk about it, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this show. But he literally thought the Republicans had not done enough in their war on drugs.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about Biden before. He was one of the architects going way back to the early days of the Reagan era, the 1984 crime bill. Biden was one of the authors and sponsors of that. He was one of the authors and sponsors of Clinton's 1994 uh, crime bill, which uh, made prosecutions against drug users even harder. Yes. Biden is the source of a lot of the damage that's been done to the African-American population in the United States since the 80s.
2: I just have to say real quick, and I know you know this, but uh, 2015- I think maybe 2016 as well. Clinton, Bill Clinton, did a lot, uh, a lot of apologizing for the bill that we're probably going to talk about in a second, uh, the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill, where he was he knew now that it destroyed a lot of uh, a lot of lives, a lot of Black Americans' lives, and he had his own wishy-washy answer for that. We'll get to that in a second. But the point is, he knew uh, that he had to make up for it, or he was hurting his wife's chances of getting the Black vote. But nowhere have I heard Biden acknowledge, apologize, uh, or even pretend to say, you know what, Maya I made a mistake. So let, if he does run for office, we'll just keep an eye on that and see if he actually ever does acknowledge his part in the war on drugs.
1: No, I, I think, uh, you're wrong there. I think Biden has. Oh, has he? I, I haven't heard yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Um, apologizes for crime bill. Yeah. When I was doing research, uh, uh, you know, uh, Last week, no, I mean last month. On this, uh, I think I came across it.
2: Okay, um, good. I, I missed that. Well, actually, it doesn't change anything. Oh, and, and while you're looking, while you're looking at that, in in, in his 194-page report, he never uses the word racism, AIDS, poverty, tobacco, or civil liberties. So for me, Biden is right up there with Nixon, Reagan, and Harry Anslinger who got this whole motherfucking thing started.
1: I might be wrong on that, actually. Here's a, here's a story from a couple of years ago. Vice President Joe Biden took credit for drafting the 1994 crime bill on Monday, a piece of legislation that both then-President Bill Clinton and his wife have renounced. Biden said that he was yeah. not at all ashamed of the controversial bill and underscored his role in crafting it. I drafted the bill, oh. as you remember, he said, and brushed yeah. off criticism that he said comes mostly from the activist movement Black Lives Matter. We talk about this mostly in terms of Black Lives Matter. Black lives really do matter, but the problem is institutional racism in America, Biden said, and went on to praise the bill for reducing sentences, creating drug courts and putting 100,000 cops on the street. The bill has garnered criticism for contributing to high mass incarceration rates through its provisions, which included mandatory minimum sentences for minor offences and a three-strikes rule that mandated life sentences to offenders convicted of a violent felony or two or more other convictions. Bill Clinton has since admitted that his policies were overly broad instead of appropriately tailored. Bullshit. But no, apparently Biden said, no, fuck all that. It was awesome. I rock.
2: That sounds like Bush. Oh. I will never apologize for America, no matter what. I
1: don't care but what the facts are. Right, <laughs> Bush said.
2: Fuck him.
1: So yeah, maybe Biden hasn't apologized. I might be wrong on that. Mm-hmm. Fucking Biden. So anyway, yeah, yes, uh, yeah. As you said, nowhere in these two hundred pages of his report did he mention racism or poverty or underlying causes. Jeez. You know, and again, as we've talked about in the previous episodes, that had been part of the, um, I guess, the, the philosophy from Nixon on through Reagan and then apparently straight on into Clinton, is you can't talk about underlying socioeconomic reasons right. for crime or for taking drugs, using drugs. Uh, you have to make it sound like these people are weak.
2: Right. Um, they're
1: They're... Yeah, weak or evil, just bad people. Because if you look at the if you look at the underlying causes, then you need to do something about the underlying oh, causes. Right. That means looking at capitalism Spending and money. looking at the, the the negative consequences of unbridled capitalism. You need to provide a social safety net, you need to provide health care, you need right. to provide better access to education, more Get equitable to access to education. Yeah. You need to you need to fix all of these fundamental problems that we all know America has. But- um, and But no, none of these politicians wanted to address any of the systemic problems in the country.
2: I just wanted to point out again, those very issues you're talking about, they're not problems. They were purposefully set up that way by a lot of white politicians, um, and they're not going to want to reverse those. I mean, and, and the, to, boot all, to, to add on to that, they're certainly not going to want to spend money on these people. So, yeah, they're not going to do it unless they absolutely have to or until they get voted out of office and get somebody else in there.
1: And as I've said a couple of times, it was almost impossible for politicians to do that, even if they wanted to. Because as soon as they said something along those lines, it would be like, "You're soft on drugs, right. you're soft, soft on, drugs, on crime.
2: crime, soft on communists." Those are the and big. And that's three. it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Your, your career's your career's over just <laughs> with that right. soft on. Soft on. <laughs> it's over. It's over. <laughs> you know. It doesn't
2: matter what they say. Yeah. Yeah. At that point. No, but I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Well, I wanted to talk about Jocelyn Elders. Okay. Did you have something no, to do before that?
2: J- just real quick, I'll make this quick. Uh, so, a lot of people, when Clinton comes into office, they're expecting him to, or they're hoping that he's going to do something about the war on drugs. But for whatever reason, and I'm because, uh, you know, you know, like you said, you and I lived through this. I'm trying to remember the details. But Clinton decided to take on the military when he comes up with his don't ask, don't tell policy. So, the point is, he's trying to work out a way for gay men and women to be able to serve in the armed forces. But the point is, he expends a lot of good and a lot of political capital on that. And so for whatever reason, either in reality or he doesn't feel that he has enough political capital left over to take on something like changing the war on drugs. So he made priorities. And so some people are going to be disappointed that he chose to go that way as opposed to to the war on drugs. So, so just kind of the way things work out in politics when a politician first comes into the White House.
1: Yeah, so his uh, first... Budget basically duplicated Bush's approach to a heavy emphasis on law enforcement when it came to dealing with drugs. He didn't, yeah. nothing really changed under Clinton right. when it came to the drug war. Um, then in 1993, um, on Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> right.
2: I'm assuming that's
1: December, December? 7th. Yeah, December yeah. 7th here. Yeah. yeah. Clinton's Surgeon General. Jocelyn Elders, Mm -hmm. a black woman, Mm -hmm. uh, gave an hour-long speech to the National Press Club about AIDS, teen pregnancy, other things, other public health uh, issues. During questions afterwards, um, an activist, Eric Sterling, asked if legalisation of marijuana isn't one of the difficult choices we must face to fight violence and elders answered I do feel that we would markedly reduce our crime rate if drugs were legalized but I don't know all of the ramifications of this I do feel that we need to do some studies
2: okay break that down for me this is her opinion based off her experience she admits she doesn't know all the details and she thinks we should study this How is any of that bad?
1: Look, you would think in a rational world Mm -hmm. um, that would not uh, be a big deal. In the United States, the Surgeon General is the Chief Public Health Officer. Mm -hmm. So this is in her ballywick. It's not like she's talking about something she shouldn't (laughs) be talking about. She's talking about... But again, see, Americans at this stage, the politicians, anyway don't see drugs as a health issue right. it's a criminal issue not a health exactly. issue exactly. and even aids if if you're getting it from a dirty needle is a yeah. criminal issue not a health Jesus. issue yeah anyway the white house fucking went nuts <laughs> um, she got criticized from the you know the 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 Press drug enforcement oh, uh, people sorry. in the country
2: yeah
1: even dd myers clinton's Famous press secretary who was the an advisor to the West Wing TV show and CJ yep. Craig is based on Dee Dee Myers. Dee Dee Myers said the president is against legalizing drugs and he's not interested in studying the issue.
2: Oh my God. Now we blow don't want jobs, any facts. Blowjobs are yeah, fine. No, yeah. but, he um... will study
1: blowjobs getting them <laughs> oh, all day, every day. But come on. He draws the line at right. science when it comes to drugs. <laughs> um, and for good measure, a New York congressman introduced a bill to right. prohibit federally sponsored research pertaining yeah. to the legalization of drugs.
2: It is not... Oh, fuck. God. D- now, let me, let me get your opinion on this. As far as what's going to happen next to Elder's son... I read through it. I drilled down a little bit. And for me, it was, it was entrapment. Uh, so let me, let me run this by you. So eight days later, after she gives her speech, her oldest son, Kevin, has charges filed against him by the Arkansas police for a two gram cocaine deal. And of course, if you remember, Bill Clinton is from Arkansas. So this is a family thing. Now, this, this, uh, this arrest that comes after this is involving an undercover agent. And what happened was this arrest happened, this uh, this selling of the drugs to the undercover agent happened like four months earlier when she was going through her uh, Senate testimony, her confirmation hearings. So it's not like it just happened. It happened months ago. They didn't do anything with it at first. And it's like they were just sitting there waiting to see what would happen. But because this is Bill's Arkansas, and even though this is his first offense, because of the state laws, he is looking at a 10 year mandatory sentence without parole and this is the oldest son uh, of uh, jocelyn elders like you said the highest um, medical person in the country so again this is this just seems too for me too pat too convenient she gives a speech and then suddenly her son is in jail for something that happened four months ago
1: yeah now he actually ended up getting sentenced to ten years yeah. in prison for trying to sell cocaine to an undercover police officer. Um, this is while his mother is the Surgeon General, yeah, and had spo- spoken out about legalizing drugs. Now, I guess, I get one question is: Did she know that her son was a drug user and/or dealer? Um, is that did that influence? Her position on
2: uh, mm-hmm. legalization of drugs, I don't know. Well, here's the part. Before this event, her son had had issues with drugs and alcohol. They had his stomach stapled. They did some other things, some other physio- physical um Procedures. I can't remember exactly what, but the point is, Kevin. His name is Kevin. He's back home with his parents. He's generally doing fine, and he hadn't hadn't did drugs or alcohol for quite some time. But then suddenly, a friend starts calling him, and he just starts um, harassing him for Kevin to sell him some cocaine. And this goes on, I think, for a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months. Finally, Kevin gives in, and he meets up with this friend to sell him drugs. And it turns out the friend is an undercover police officer. So they have this exchange. They don't do anything with it. And then four months later, she gives a speech. Boom. And then he is suddenly charged. That's what oh, really happened. God. Yeah.
1: So uh, a friend who was an undercover cop.
2: Yeah. They, he he stru- stru- started an acquaintance with him and kept harassing him. And Kevin was trying to behave himself because his you know, his mother was coming down hard on him. And if you've seen pictures of her, I mean, she's pretty scary. He was behaving himself. He got off alcohol and finally gave into this guy's request. And it was an undercover cop Yeah, yeah. To me Yeah, I mean,
1: sound, that's, yeah, that's like like entrapment, a, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, yeah
1: Yeah Same as the DeLorean no. Story that we exactly. did a few episodes ago.
2: Now the good news is he's only going to do four months in jail. After that, he's he's given what do they call it when you they give you over to the um, to your parents? He has to stay at the house. Uh, he's in the, recognizance. the cognizance of his parents. Of course, considering who she is. So the point is he got lucky on that. But yeah, he was looking at ten years in an Arkansas penitentiary. That would have been that would have been horrific.
1: Mm. So it sounds like this was an attempt to. Get her to shut up. Yeah,
2: we we got something on Legalisation of exactly. drugs, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um. Yes. So, uh,
2: can I can I go off? Oh no, we're going to do the uh, 1994 bill, aren't we? Never mind. No, no? I want
1: to keep talking about this a little bit. So, okay, yeah. Jocelyn Elders. Um, you know, came back after this like a month later And said that she'd studied up on legalisation And now I realised I probably made a more honest Above-board statement than I knew I had made Damn So she, she's going hard, man Yeah Um. Listen, everyone's telling me to shut up They arrested my son, but I'm sticking to it Yeah um, I think legalisation is the way forward um, But... Uh, A couple of years later, 1994, she was invited to speak at a United Nations conference on AIDS. Right. She was asked whether or not it would be appropriate, appropriate to promote masturbation as a means of preventing young people from engaging in risky forms of sex, which... They you know, may lead them yeah. to catch Guess. AIDS. Right. She replied, I think that it is part of human sexuality and perhaps it should be taught. Now, I don't know about you, Ray, but no one ever needed to teach me right. masturbation. Um. Um, I know you, you demonstrated your <laughs> technique to me a number of times in Vegas, but uh, I don't <laughs> think I learnt anything. I mean, I had to get a magnifying glass out to <laughs> see exactly. I might have missed something.
2: But uh, it's like I, Seinfeld. The twist at the end, I think, really makes all the difference.
1: I cried. I was <laughs> a little bit sad for you. And, and you had to get into your bubble again in order to get hard. Um, I felt sad for you. Anyway, that's what she said. Uh, at this point, yeah, the White House chief of staff at the time, Leon Panetta. Yeah. He ended up being the head of the CIA or something, yep. didn't he, Leon Panetta? It's
2: either CIA, or FBI. I can't remember which one. Probably CIA.
1: CIA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, under under Barack Obama, Barack Obama made him the head of the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um. He uh, he basically fired her. He said there yeah. have been too many areas where the president does not agree with her views. This is just one too many, and Master she was forced patient. to resign. Yeah. Yeah. by President Clinton. Now, of course, right. if she had said masturbation is only, can't think of my word, is only uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> appropriate, there's the word I'm thinking of, right. when it's a president masturbating one of his young female <laughs> interns with a cigar right. in the Oval <laughs> Office, she probably would have kept a job. He would have gone. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, come in. You watch and, and give me some feedback on my technique. Right. See what you think.
2: Or hear me out. She came in with a cigar and she said to the president, looking deeply into his eyes, "I'm not wearing any panties."
1: <laughs> I don't know. A friend of mine, Constantine, uh, was uh, pinged me on Facebook the other day. Said he actually took a tour of the West Wing recently, and they showed him where it happened on the tour. Oh, um God. there was a nook in a corridor he said right. now yeah. I don't know if it was her nook or <laughs> up her corridor in her nook I don't they should know used
2: different words right, right
1: yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that on the tour wow okay <laughs> things have changed.
1: Well, he said that the person taking the tour said something like, and something happened in this nook of this corridor, but I'm not going to get into it right now.
2: Uh, And later
1: on, Con was like, what was that? And he goes, that's where Bill Clinton did the cigar thing with Monica Lewinsky. Oh, (laughs) God. Oh, God. All right, so that was the end of Jocelyn Elders. She's still around, by the way. She's 85. Don't know what her her son's up to, but uh, she's still around. Yeah. Well, then 1996 I was going to jump to. Is that okay with you?
2: Yeah, um, I, I just had something real quick, but I can do it at the end of Clinton because it's about him and Big Pharma. So not exactly related. So please go ahead.
1: All right. Uh, well, in 1996, 66 years after Harry the gunslinger <laughs> and slinger went rogue on the war on drugs, right. things really started to change quickly. 92, was we saw, the media started talking about the disproportionate sentencing of black men in the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Then in 1996, things really changed when the state of California voted to legalise medical marijuana. No thanks, of course, to Bill Clinton. In fact, his administration tried to shut that shit down.
2: Yes, they did.
1: But it happened anyway. And then Arizona, surprisingly... Very Republican, Mormon, Arizona, Mm -hmm. went even further. They forbid the imprisonment of first or second time non-violent drug possessors. Wow. Permitted the medical use of marijuana and Mm -hmm. opened the door to medical use of heroin and LSD as well. God (laughs) damn. Now, this is a state where Republicans were 65% of the population. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Clinton administration lost their shit. uh, Clinton's drug czar, General Barry McCaffrey, Mm -hmm. do you know what he was best known for before he became the drug
2: czar? No, tell me.
1: You know, on our Bush show the other day, um, we talked about at the end of Operation Desert Storm when the Iraqi army and a whole bunch of civilians were retreating from Kuwait. Right. Um, Bush... Uh, and and um, Schwarzkopf gave the order to bomb the fuck out of the retreating army, right, right. the Highway of Death as that it's had known.
2: Civilians in it. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Barry McCaffrey was the guy that actually commanded the bombing raid on the oh, Highway of Death. Right. Clinton sure. was like, you know what? You do such a good job at killing civilians. I think I'll make you my drug czar. <laughs>
2: Oh my God! I I just have to mention him. Are, are we going to go back to Proposition Two Fifteen, or you just wanted to mention that?
1: No, we're getting up to that. That's what I'm okay. leading up I'm to sorry. here.
2: Then I'll wait. Okay, go ahead. Hmm. Um. Now, when when
1: marijuana medical marijuana was legalized in California, Barry McCaffrey, the drugs are threatened to send basically DEA agents forces into California and Arizona right. to arrest people that were using medical marijuana, even though the states had legalized it. But then they considered how that's going to look on television, federal agents hauling cancer patients off the prison. And AIDS patients. Um, Right. So
2: they decided they would go after doctors. Yes. Not the patients. Yeah, he referred to it as the Cheech and Chong medicine, which I think is funny, but not exactly... uh, (laughs) Yeah, the point.
1: Yeah, they said yeah. they would revoke the medical license yeah. of any doctor who recommended marijuana, and Bill Clinton supported this.
2: Yep, and they threatened so to take all their. Well, they they threatened to uh, take property, just like they'd been doing with uh, drug dealers or supposed drug dealers. They threatened to take any of the doctor's property that was being used as far as medical uh, as far as marijuana goes.
1: Wow, offices. you yeah. prescribe marijuana, which is legal in your state, medical right. marijuana, we will come and the take feds, your shit.
2: Right, your clinic, your your house, if you have it there, your office, whatever, yeah, we're going to take it.
1: And then the New England Journal of Medicine blasted the Clinton administration for resisting the will of the people in California Ooh, and Arizona. Good point. And it was a bad time to for the federal government, particularly in a democratic administration, to be looking like it was going against states' rights. Mm-hmm. So they started to back off. And, and the media got behind the initiatives in California and Arizona as well legislators all over the country said they were going to try and get similar laws passed in their states. Right. And so, I mean, Clinton had his supporters. Orrin Hatch from Utah, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, is currently still. He's retiring. Yeah, but he's still in the Senate. He is the longest-serving Republican U.S. Senator in history,
2: but he is retiring. He said, we can't let this go without a response. Oh, God. I, I once looked up how much he was worth when he went into Congress and how much he's worth now. And believe it or not, those are two very different numbers.
1: Is he, has he lost money? No. Um, being no. a lowly paid public servant?
2: No. no? <laughs> but I think he's up to, was it $14 million or something like that? You know, so he, he grew up poor um, in, in, that, in the back, backwoods of the state he's at, and now he's worth roughly $14 million. So obviously it pays to be a senator
1: a mm, Mormon yeah. senator in Utah yeah very Mormon the Mormon most Mormony Mormon
2: the more Mormon the better
1: yeah and uh, did you see by the way speaking of all of this um, Utah uh, Supreme Court forced Utah to um, legalize marijuana recently and yeah. uh, and they they've just decided to um, Ignore well, it's a the million courts. Million
2: dollar business,
1: yeah. Maybe and they're ignoring the
2: cause. right?
1: Mm. Medical marijuana, yeah. Um, they 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 interfered with it. Got passed by the people and uh, Proposition Two, I think there. But then right. they uh, they they they're fucking with it anyway. Another story. Um, now the problem with all of this, though, Ray, the California and Arizona bills, which we'll get to and we'll talk about them, is that. Um, the only legal source of marijuana in the country was the federal government. Right. Who disagreed with these bills. So these... <laughs> these, these. <laughs> so the federal government was put in a position where they could either refuse to provide marijuana to right. these states to, in turn, make it available to patients.
2: Sounds like a win. Or
1: they could resist the initiative with force or they could just turn a blind eye and let it happen. Mm-hmm. But there's some challenges in that right. What, what do you think the challenges in this would be?
2: Um, well, if you turn a blind eye, I mean, you're pretty much just letting people do whatever they want. Um, I don't know. I, either way, I see it getting out of hand for the, um, for the agency of the government that controls what little legal marijuana there is. I do remember in, in uh, the previous show, even though it was in the notes, we didn't talk about it, they had shut down the program where they had anybody who could ask for, petition for medical marijuana based on having cancer. So that's been shut down. They're not giving anybody any new, uh, any, they're, not, they're not giving new people marijuana for their disease. So what are they going to do?
1: Well, the other challenge here is if you've spent sixty odd years telling people that marijuana has no <laughs> medical value whatsoever, right, and turns people into drug crazed murderers, and all sure. of a sudden you go, "All right, yeah, we'll give it to you for medical use." Yeah, um, you're, you're,
0: <laughs> yeah. you're kind
1: of you're, you're kind of admitting that you've been lying for sixty six years, right. Um yeah like how do you justify confiscating marijuana right. smokers houses and sending <laughs> sending people to prison right in the rest of the country, but in two states going yeah yeah no you should you can smoke this and it'll help your yeah. cancer and, your, and, and yeah. your AIDS yeah yeah like it, it created it fractured. The, the the dialogue, it fractured the commentary, the narrative. That's the right. word I'm looking for. It go. fractured the government's narrative on marijuana. Absolutely, positively, without any doubt, we don't even need to study it, so don't even suggest it. We've banned studies on it. Right. There is no medical value in smoking marijuana. They've been saying this for decades, and all of a yep. sudden they're going... Oh, yeah okay yeah, yeah. You, you can have it you can, you, you can have it for your medical <laughs> That's right. for medical reasons. Yeah. It's it completely destroyed undermined. right undermined Yes, the credibility. Now McCaffrey, the um, bomber of civilians, <laughs> um, appeared everywhere on television warning that these initiatives in California, Arizona were the thin edge of the wedge it was going yep. to end up in legalization of marijuana. <gasps> Say it isn't so, pastor. Yeah. I do declare.
2: And, of course, he was right. <laughs> and that was the point. Right. But it wasn't the bad thing he thought it was.
1: Now, the the um, campaigns to make medical marijuana legal in these states provided a, a model for activists all around the country. Mm. And they started to model what California and Arizona had done. Now, they'd been trying before. they tried twice in California before this. Twice mm-hmm. in California before this, the legislature had passed medical marijuana bills only to have them vetoed by the governor, Pete right. Wilson.
2: Right. Dick.
1: Um, but by this stage, 1996, they had managed to get such wide grassroots support that uh, there wasn't anything he could do about it. Mm. And so that leads us to talk about Prop 215. Well, before we get on, I'll just say that since then, obviously, um, uh, Colorado and Washington um, have legalised marijuana for recreational purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were the first. Then there was Alaska, California, Maine. I think they're the ones that have completely legalized it. Uruguay became the first country to legalize it in 2013. Wow. Canada right. became the first wealthy country to do so just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically, this this medical marijuana bill that passed in California in, in 1996 was the first domino that toppled, right. led to a chain reaction over the last. 22 years that has seen the war on drugs completely start to collapse. And we're going to talk about that and how it happened in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I want to talk about normal. We haven't talked about normal, I think, over the course of this show. Okay. NORML, the National Organization for Marijuana Law Reform, Founded in 1970 by a lawyer, Keith Stroop. Right. Uh, Where did he get the money to start Normal, Ray? Selling pot? I don't remember. No, he got it from Hugh Hefner. Oh, that's right. That's right. He got a $5,000 grant from Hugh Hefner in 1970. (laughs) At one point, Hefner was donating $100,000 a year to Normal. Mm. Because you know the Hef... Yeah. Love to Sex love to pays. smoke up, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yes, and he loved to love to get high. Him and him and Willie Nelson sit around, <laughs> get high, a bunch and of playboy bunnies. Yeah, be surrounded by a bunch of playboy bunnies.
2: What are we doing wrong? Sorry. Keith Strew. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Everything. <laughs> what Keith Stroop um, was the executive director of Normal until 1979. Uh, uh-huh. Carter administration, as we mentioned earlier, I think last episode, eleven states had adopted marijuana decriminalization laws, and Normal was the main legalization, uh, uh, you know, organization in the United States in the 70s. Right. And he did a terrific job, um, but then he fucked up. In the late 70s. Do you remember the story of what happened?
2: Uh, He was at a party and he may or may not have indulged in cocaine. And there was a witness. Well, it was. No, it wasn't wasn't him. Oh, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, no. um, Carter, during Carter's administration, which had favored marijuana reform. Right. We talked about this, I think, at one point. This is one of the things that changed the Carter administration's position on drugs. Oh, yeah. Carter's drug czar was a guy called Peter Bourne. He was pro-marijuana reform. But uh, he disagreed with Stroop from Normal about the spraying of Mexican marijuana fields with a herbicide. Right. Bourne wanted to keep doing that. Stroop was pressuring him to stop doing that. Um, And they had a bit of a falling out. And so in retaliation, to stick it to Bourne, Stroop acknowledged to a reporter that he had seen Bourne snort cocaine at Normal's oh, Christmas party.
2: Right, right.
1: Which meant Bourne, the drugs are <laughs> had been snorting cocaine, he lost his job, and Stroop lost his job. As well. Right. Um, According to one person, the folks at Normal didn't like snitches and eased him out the door. But he was invited back in 1994, Um, and so in the lead up to what happened in 96, he was again running Normal, and he ran it all the way through to 2005 when he stepped down. Large grassroots network they have today, 135 chapters with over 550 lawyers helping draft <laughs> legislation state by state for the legalization of marijuana. So Keith Stroop and Normal, yeah. they, they, they owe, we owe them a lot of the credit for right. uh, legalization. Yeah. But then um, the big thing that happened in 1996 was California's Proposition 215, 215.
2: Mm-hmm. So there was this gay man in California named Jonathan West... He, con- he contracted HIV, eventually got AIDS, and he died in 1990. His partner, Dennis Perron, um, who was a San Francisco marijuana activist, decided to do something to honor West and to help others in that same situation. Now, just to back up a bit, um, uh, Peron was uh, born in 1945. He served in the United States Air Force during the Vietnam War, and that's when he had his first experience with marijuana. He was also gay. So so much for those who say that pot smokers and gay men can't Wait, wait. He was gay and his lover Believe was it? gay? Believe what it are the not. odds of that? Hey, I'm just I'm just setting the scene here. Don't don't do that again. Okay, because you and I have had sex and weren't I gay. So it's not a <laughs> foregone conclusion. Okay? We're gayish. The point is Sorry. the point is Sorry. <laughs> for people who say that pot smokers are That was in Vegas. It's It's not gay if it happens in Vegas. It was pleasurable, but it's not gay. So, So much for those who say that pot smokers or gay men can't serve in the military. So anyways... West his partner died in 1990 and according to Peron I hope I'm saying his name right he, he was talking about his, his his physical deterioration before he before he died he said he was wasting away from 142 pounds to 110 pounds the doctors prescribed uh, Marinol, the THC formula in in the in a pill form uh, but Jonathan just vomited it up a lot of people had that reaction to it and, and um, Peron said it didn't make any sense after a couple of puffs on a joint by contrast everything uh, was much better with um with the gentleman as, as he was laying dying and it did everything that paranol could not do so this guy is like i've lost this friend this partner there are plenty of others that are in the same situation i want to do something about this
1: you know the bit where I said don't get far into his story because yeah. I've got a video oh, of him telling dude, the story.
2: I apologise.
1: So this is Dennis Peron. He's known as the father of medical marijuana. One of the authors, main author of California's Proposition Two Fifteen, telling a little bit about
0: his uh, story. Well, I'll tell you what happened. It was uh, <clears throat> Proposition W and Proposition P, ar- uh, arose. Out of a marijuana bus that I had, I was busted in 1977. I used to run the Big Top Pot Supermarket, okay. and it was a one-stop pot supermarket, one-stop shop for all your pot needs. Okay. And it was a very elaborate setup. And uh, when I came when I came to San Francisco, I had trouble buying pot, and I had to like kiss a lot of ass, and I had a lot of uh, hassles getting pot. So I just decided to start a pot supermarket myself, or sell pot myself. It evolved into a supermarket because there were so many different kinds of pot and at that time, and different prices and everything. So I, um, I tried to get as many different kinds of pot together in one spot as I could. Okay. And the, um, the idea grew and grew and grew. And before you knew it, I had three scales, 15 people working. I had four people that all they did was roll joints. And um, every night we would sell pot to about five, six hundred people. It was a very elaborate setup, beautiful house, and customers were treated with dignity and respect, and no one was ever gypped. In 1977, I got busted, like I said, and uh, we had a four-month trial after I got busted. I didn't mention that I, I got shot during that raid. Um, in the leg, right? Yeah, I got shot in the leg. Um, what it was is the but the supermarket was going down and uh, I heard a ruckus at the door and I went to the, the stairway to see what was going on and I see this uh, guy coming up with a gun, big old floppy hat and fatigue jacket. And I think the first thing I think of course is a rip, mm-hmm. that these guys are gonna rob us. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I do is grab something close by, which was an empty Alhambra water bottle, and I hold it up the stairs like, go down the stairs and we'll forget all about this. Mm-hmm. But before I'd even got the bottle up, the uh, guy had shot me. And he got me with the first shot and threw me back, and then another shot went past by ear. And this was the point where I was convinced that these guys were murderous rip-offs that they were gonna kill everybody in the house, so I was willing to give them everything I had, Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, The guy comes up the stairs and puts a gun to my head, and I'm thinking that goodbye, Dennis. Fortunately, another guy comes in the room, and it turns out he's a cop. Turns out they're all cops, (laughs) much to my surprise. Uh, So I was shot. And I remember the day, that, that day, they were taking me out of the, uh, the house on a stretcher. And out in front of the house, there was five or six hundred people that had gathered around the house, mainly my friends and customers. And when they took me out, I shot a peace sign to those people, and the whole street screamed, Dennis, Dennis, <laughs> Dennis, Dennis. can't must have helped you heal. And it did help me feel a lot better, even though I knew it was kind of curtains for the big top.
1: Yeah. Damn. So that's where he got. That's where he got started yeah. um, <clears throat> in San Francisco. Got back from Vietnam. He discovered pot in Vietnam, like a <laughs> lot of American yeah. soldiers did. Um. And so, uh, fast, he, he he sort of a pot activist for the 70s and into the 80s. And then, as you said, his lover, Jonathan West, died of AIDS in 1990. And that's when he decides he's going to get involved in trying to make marijuana more accessible Mm -hmm. for people that are suffering from AIDS and cancer. Because I, I saw in one interview he said that his partner, Uh, The marijuana kept him alive for three years, he believed. Uh, At the end there, uh, enabled him to handle the the AIDS medication, the nausea, giving him an Mm -hmm. appetite um, because obviously people on cancer medication, chemo and AIDS medication lose their appetite, uh, which is one of the reasons they waste away. So this smoking pot famously gives you Mm -hmm. the munchies. And so he set up, something called the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club in 1992, right. the first public marijuana dispensary in the United States. Wow! Now, this came after something called Proposition P that he managed to get passed in 1991. Mm-hmm. You want to explain Proposition P?
2: Um, I just have it as the San Francisco Medical Marijuana Initiative that passed by... Seventy nine percent of the vote. Unfortunately, I do not have any detailed information on it. Um, it unfortunately did not have the force of law behind it. It was simply a resolution declaring the city support for mer- medical marijuana.
1: Yeah, well, that's basically okay. what it was. So they, they he managed to get this passed. It basically, people saying, uh, "Listen, we we support the the legalization of medical mm-hmm. marijuana." But it wasn't legislation; it was just it was basically like a massive petition, but in the form of a right. of a vote. After that passed, he set up the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club. Santa Cruz and some other cities followed suit with uh, bills endorsing medical marijuana. But again, this right. isn't law. Now. Um, as I think I mentioned earlier on, California legislature went on to approve medical marijuana mm-hmm. bills, but they were vetoed each time by the governor, Republican Pete Wilson. Dick. Sorry, Dick Wilson. <laughs> yeah, Dick, Dick, Pete Wilson, the Dick. So, said like that, the people yeah. are voting. We want this, and yeah. the governor goes, yeah, "No, you don't." You
2: want? Exactly. No.
1: You can't have it. But we voted for it. Yeah. There's a democracy. Yeah. No. no we give a shit. Well. Yeah. No. Not really. <laughs> no. Now the whole point of setting up the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club, according to Dennis Peron, was to get arrested. Ah. His plan was to get arrested and then launch a legal defense based on the medical necessity of marijuana for people suffering from That's crazy. AIDS. He wanted to prove in court that there was nothing else that made AIDS patients more mm-hmm. comfortable than access to marijuana. Right. But he didn't get arrested until a few years later. A few years later in 1996, Dennis Peron co-authored California's Proposition 215, which sought again to legalize medical cannabis. Now he worked worked closely with a number of people including Dr. Todd Mikuria. I like that name. Did you read up did you read up on Mikuria? Uh,
2: not too much just that he did go around in the 1980s and 90s uh, worldwide speaking on the behalf of the medical use of cannabis. So in that in that sphere he was quite the pop star. But that's pretty much all I know.
1: Right, well, his mother, is he's, he's an American. His mother was an immigrant from Germany. His mm-hmm. father, Taro Fumi Mikoriya! No, no, that's was, so Why is that wrong? That's how you got to say. Is that's it, how Japanese men, if, yeah. That's, if he's you, samurai,
2: you gotta, maybe, but. He if, was
0: okay. samurai.
2: That's <laughs> my point. But I apologize. He was the descendant
1: of a Japanese samurai we'll, family. Well,
2: fuck maybe, Tar
1: no we'll for me. Taro Mikoriya! <laughs> 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 Actually worked as a civil engineer, just a samurai right? on the side, oh, if gotcha. ever needed him. Sure. Now, the son, Dr. Todd, he had uh, been working for decades to legalize uh, marijuana, Right. who was a psychiatrist and an author of books. Now, one of the books he's most famous for was the ma- Marijuana Medical Papers that he self-published in 1972. Now... Do you remember in an early episode, when we were talking about the Nixon administration, we talked about how they decided to go out and remove all of the positive medical and scientific studies about marijuana from the journals of, yeah, Yeah. the National Institute on Drug Abuse had all of these positive stories about marijuana, scientific studies, medical studies. Right. And they actually sent notifications out that they had to be removed from libraries, uh, government libraries and uh, public libraries and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Well, Dr. Todd made copies of all of the studies before they were removed and self-published them as a book so they didn't disappear.
2: I don't know about Samurai, but he's a fucking ninja. Go ahead.
1: He's yeah, he's known as the grandfather slash ninja of the medical <laughs> cannabis movement.
2: Good for him.
1: So he died yeah. in the late nineties. So
2: again, a psychiatrist, someone who's a, a doctor doing probably doing research, reading up, experimenting um, in the real world, and again, what he thinks or what his opinion is doesn't matter squat to the governor of, of California.
1: Of course not, because it's fact based. Right. Just checking. So, look, in, in 96, um, as we said earlier, when this 215 passed, um, the the Clinton's drug czar, mass murderer General Barry McCaffrey. Right. Um, he was the one who actually referred to Dr. Todd as the Cheech and shot Ah, gotcha. Now, not only is that a drug reference, but a little bit racist, right?
2: Yeah, good point. Good point.
1: Cheech and for, I don't know if the kids who don't remember Cheech and Chong—it's uh, a weird place. Cheech and Chong have much, you know, relevancy these days. But um, yeah, they were uh, uh, what uh, comedians, I yeah. guess, who who played dope, dope right. uh, guys. I think they did it as they did it as stand up, and they did it as uh, then they turned it into albums and then movies and that kind of stuff. But um, Chong Tommy Chong, his father was Chinese. Mm -hmm. Uh, His mother, I think, was Canadian. um, But he had some Chinese heritage. So the whole so so as did Doctor Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, so referring to his thing as the Cheech and Chong show Ooh, was sort of a bit of a racist. Bill Clinton's drugs are making a bit of a racist. <laughs> I just have to ask statement. I
2: just have to ask real quick, did you see the Cheech and Chong movie um Corsican Brothers or something like that? No. Oh no, I didn't. they're they're twins. Never, never
1: been a huge Cheech and Chong
2: fan. Oh well anyway, just real quick, they're twins and they can feel each other's pain and pleasure. So I would imagine that certain times of the day, you probably feel pleasure as I'm in the shower. But anyway, because I think of us as, uh, as uh, twins. But it, it's a pretty Twins, really? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a funny it... movie. You should check it out.
1: We, we would be twins like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny <laughs> DeVito were twins.
2: Okay, you um, know what? Just for that, I'm going to kick myself in the nuts, and I hope you feel it.
1: Here's a bit of uh, classic Cheech and Chong for the
0: kids. Who is it? It's me, Dave. Open up, man. I got the stuff. Who is it? It's me, Dave, man. Open up. I got the stuff. Who? It's Dave, man. Open up. I think the cops saw me come in here. What the hell? Who is it? It's, it's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff with me. Who? Dave, man. Open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Come on, man. Open up. I think the cops are. Dave's me. not here. No, man. I'm Dave, man. Hey, come on, man. Who is it? It's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff with Who? me. Dave, man. Open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Dave's not here. Uh, No, man, I am Dave, man. Will you, come on, open up the door, will you? I got the stuff with me. I think the cops saw me. Who is it? Oh, what the hell is it? Man, (laughs) open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave, D-A-V-E. Will you open up the goddamn door? Yeah, Dave. (laughs) Dave? Right, man, Dave. Now, will you open up the door? Dave's not here. Oh, (laughs)
1: Just, that's exactly what it feels like doing a show with you.
2: <laughs> is that the end of the clip? Yes. Okay. No, my favorite scene of Cheech and Chong was they pulled over by the cops. They roll down the window. A ton of pot smoke comes out. The cop is like, can I see your license? And Chong, Cheech just barely gets out. Uh, isn't it on the back of the car, man? And that's like, no, <laughs> like, no, no, sir. Your driver's license. Oh, Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But that, to me, that was just the, the best scene out of their entire career. Mm.
1: Um, so Dr. Todd... Uh, sorry, uh, actually, no. Dr. Todd died in 2007, um, but continued, continued in private psychiatric yes. practice um, where he all he did was cannabis clinical consultation.
2: Nice.
1: Um, he is... Allegedly, uh, he approved marijuana... For medical purposes, to over nine thousand patients.
2: Oh God, good for him! But not even, even. only
1: in terminal cases, but just for people in physical and emotional pain. I think he had some problems. He, he kind of got de uh, de-licensed. They went after him at one point, right? Um, but he appealed it and got it back.
2: Well, I, I was going to say Clinton's um, uh, Clinton's. Um, drug team, as well as the California Attorney General, went after 15 medical doctors in California, and they had to fight like hell, take a lot of time and a lot of their own money just to uh, keep their medical license. So I'm sure he was wrapped up in that as well. But you're right, the Clinton administration was going hardcore for these doctors trying to, you know, derail the war on drugs.
1: The Los Angeles Times reported in 2004 about Dr. Todd, he willingly acknowledges unlike most of his peers in cannabis consulting, that he does indeed smoke pot, mostly in the morning with his coffee. Oh, so then. that'd be nice. Dan Lundgren, who was the Attorney General of California, ordered a police raid on Dennis Peron's Cannabis Buyers Club a month before the election, oh. had him arrested, um, thinking that's going to stop his campaign for bloody, you know, right. legalising medical marijuana. But, of course, it just helped. <laughs> um, it's exactly what he wanted, gave him all the press that he needed. Right. But um, nearly wasn't enough. So he had sort of a, a pack that he'd set up, a political action committee, mm-hmm. uh, to try and get medical marijuana on the ballot called Californians for Compassionate Use.
2: Oh, Okay.
1: They organized a grassroots volunteer-based drive to collect signatures to get it on the ballot. You needed 400,000 signatures. Right. But as it was getting close to the deadline, uh, these volunteers weren't really yeah. getting the job done. Do you
2: know why? So we...
1: They were all high? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, we should go and get some
2: signatures to get we legal, man. Oh, yeah. I just... But well, Dave's not here, man. Hey, Dave. Dave's not here. I think I just rolled up and smoked my petition. Oh
1: man. Yeah, that was the that was the great floor in the plan <laughs> of getting it done. But he was able to put together a group of rich people including George Soros. Aha. Conspiracy Soros. Company. Sorry. Personally donated $550,000. Good god. How much is There it was comes? some other, right? There were they got a couple of million dollars. There's some other rich guys as well who stepped in, um, including a Rockefeller. Uh, I read the the CEO I think of a big insurance company, but they basically then hired a political consulting firm, ah. Zimmerman and Markman, right, out of California, to you know take it to the next level, ah. um, which they did. They got. Professional door knockers. The whole thing was uh, set up, and uh, they got it done. They got the votes. Got it on. Got it on the ballot. Hi, what's your and, uh,
2: job? I'm a professional door knocker.
1: Yeah. Now there was a huge opposition campaign to Prop 215, as you would imagine. Right. Uh, law enforcement, drug prevention groups, elected officials. Former presidents, the Attorney General, Dan Lundgren. The Clinton administration called it a cynical hoax. Mm. Bob Dole called it dangerous. Oh, God. Uh, Former presidents George Herbert Walker Bush, mass murderer, (laughs) Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Right. Called it a threat to the public health of all
2: Americans. Oh, God. You know who was for It it? oncologists, a cancer survivor, a nurse, and two other California politicians. So people who have got skin in the game, who deal with this on a daily basis, who know what the fuck they're talking about and this politics isn't involved, they are on its side and they are pushing for it. But again... You know who who else was for it? Tell me who. Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) No, I meant people as far as, you know, can actually speak to... The benefits of medical marijuana. But that's a very good point. I'm sure most people in the state of California wanted this.
1: The LA Times called it ill conceived and dangerously sloppy, which is how I like <laughs> no, my women, no. Ray, but not my propositions.
2: <laughs> I like to be pro- uh, propositioned by a sloppy woman, but that's my own personal choice.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Spending the night with a dangerously sloppy woman who propositions you can be ill-conceived. That's (laughs) how you get AIDS. (laughs) And then you need weed. Right.
2: It's a vicious cycle.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, um... Obviously, the AIDS epidemic uh, had been big in California as well. So people in California really understood Ah. the benefits of medical marijuana. A lot of people like Dennis Perron had known people who were going through AIDS, going through cancer, had been smoking weed illicitly. Um, a lot of people were for it. One of my favorite people I wanted to talk about who was part of the Prop 215 campaign mm-hmm. was 60-year-old Brownie Mary Rathburn. Brownie?
2: Okay. Tell me. Did You, know, you didn't read up on Brownie? I, I read just a little bit. I mean, if you've got some backstory or whatever, um, please entertain me. But um, this woman's got balls.
1: I'm right up her backstory, <laughs> Brownie. She was 60 at the time. Now... If you want a picture, um, um,
2: fuck. Picture, Good, uh, f- picture <laughs> of fuck. 60-year-old fuck. <laughs> All right, I'm turned on. Go ahead. I'm touching myself. Um, Do you feel anything? Who is,
1: who's the woman from the Golden Girls? She's oh. like 95, still going. Oh,
2: uh, Betty White.
1: Picture Betty White. Right. That's what... Brownie Mary looked like. Oh, my God. She looked like your grandma. Okay. Big silver, you know, curly hair, big fucking 80s glasses, <laughs> sweet, sweet old lady. Sweater.
2: Uh-huh.
1: She got arrested for baking marijuana brownies <laughs> in the lead up to the Prop 215, which got a lot of headlines. Right. Uh, and a lot of sympathy because she's this sweet yeah. old woman who got arrested. Now... Her story is fascinating. She was a, she'd been a, a, a cannabis rights activist for decades at this point. Mm-hmm. She was a hospital volunteer at San Francisco General Hospital and was known for baking cannabis brownies yeah. and walking around giving them to AIDS patients. Love brownies. And check this out. Her, her name was actually Mary Jane. Her birth <laughs> name was Mary Jane. It was meant to be. And in. she was famous. Yeah, it was exactly faint. right. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, she first met Dennis Peron in 1974 in San Francisco where they shared a cannabis cigarette. Now, uh, tragically, she had a daughter who was only, I think, 19 in 74 and had been killed in a hit and run.
2: Oh, right. Uh,
1: she was divorced. She, she sort of uh, was briefly married in the 50s uh, to a, a soldier, I think, who went to Korea. Um, had a kid, uh, and this daughter was killed. One kid, daughter was killed, and I don't know if it was related to her sm- smoking weed, but anyway. Right. So she and Dennis Peron had known each other for twenty odd years. Um, then she worked as a waitress at IHOP. Wow. Where apparently she earned extra money here we go selling marijuana brownies <laughs> in the IHOP. She was That's famous. You would go place. to IHOP. Yeah, you, you get exactly right. You get the pancakes and a <laughs> cup of bad coffee. I love IHOP. I got to say, one of my favourite really? favourite things to do in America is go to an IHOP. Oh, there's one. There's one just around the corner from um, LAX, mm-hmm. and it's one of my rituals. Uh, on my on my way out of LA, I will depending on the time of day. I will either um, go down to Venice Beach on the way out, or I'll go to this IHOP. Nice, <laughs> and that's you know it's my my saying goodbye to uh, California as right. so I go to one of these two places. Um, but yeah, so you go to this IHOP, you you get your pancakes and your coffee and a, and a couple of brownies yeah. from Mary.
2: That's an awesome business. Um,
1: And she actually um, advertised on San Francisco bulletin boards her original recipe brownies, which she called Magically Delicious. (laughs) And apparently she was famous. Um, They reckon in the early 1980s she was baking about 50 dozen brownies a day.
0: What? How? How? So that would
1: be another way of saying that. For the math challenge, is 600 brownies a day. Oh my god! She had a f- whole fucking operation. Yeah. Going,
2: richest um, waitress you've ever seen.
1: Yeah. Well, no. See, I don't think she was making money out of it. She was uh, um, helping, giving them away. A lot of them to AIDS right. patients and cancer patients. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Anyway, um, January 14th, 1981, an undercover police officer found out what she was doing, raided her house, found more than 18 pounds of cannabis, (laughs) 54 dozen brownies and an assortment of other drugs. Apparently she opened the door, saw the police and said, I thought you guys were coming. She was 57 years old when she was first
2: arrested. Did they shoot her in the leg?
1: No. No. Just joking. Now, most of her customers were gay men. Um, they f- the, they first started coming down with AIDS in the early 1980s. She, along with lots of people, noticed that cannabis helped them, helped the pain, helped them to eat, right. <clears throat> kept them going, helped the, you know, just their mental state, also with cancer patients. She ended up with people would donate the cannabis to her. Wow. That she would then bake into brownies. Right. And give them away to sick people free of charge.
2: That's a real community right there, helping each other.
1: She was uh, she was getting a social security check of six hundred and fifty dollars a month, which she would use to purchase baking supplies. Right. Again, then to give away free of charge to sick people. Oh
2: I need twelve dozen eggs, uh, fifteen pounds of sugar. Um, yeah, yeah. Twelve pans. Flour. Flour. Yeah, yeah. All a, of that. A ton. Yeah. yeah. My God! Then uh, a year after
1: her bust, she was walking down Market Street in San Francisco carrying a bag of brownies when she uh, ran into one of the officers who had busted her a year earlier. Oh, he shoot. said, "What's in the bag?" She said, "Brownies," and oh, uh, she was taking them to a, a guy who had cancer and was uh, suffering from chemotherapy. Anyway, um, she got arrested again. Oh. Um, But uh, the DA eventually dropped the charges. She got arrested again in 1992, (coughs) pouring cannabis into brownie batter at the home of a grower. (gasps) Was charged again and again uh, it got dropped. She pled not guilty. But her defence attorney at the time basically said, look, everything that she does is to assist people in need. Yeah. It's not about making money. They're dying. In fact, she spends her own money right. on making brownies and giving them away. So as reprehensible as you might think her actions are, she's doing it for good reasons and for a good cause. Right. And she got off. Now, <sighs> she was um, known for appearing in public wearing polyester pantsuits. It's hot. and was known for having a sailor's mouth a bit like us right.
2: um <laughs> but she apparently was a saint they said she was a saint
1: yeah she was a saint yeah. she died of a heart attack age 77 oh. in 1999 wow. but she was um, she she was had very poor health herself she had bad knees artificial knees i think and she got quite sick towards the end died poor oh. in like a, a rest or a medical yeah. home for all you know a charity run place for old people.
2: She could have made but a ton of money, yeah.
1: She and Dennis Peron, who, by the way, died earlier this year. He died in January this year.
0: Oh,
1: wow. Um, uh, were people who spent decades of their lives to legalize medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that, as I said earlier on, was the beginning of the end for the propaganda campaign right. against marijuana. Proposition two hundred and fifteen passed with fifty-five uh, percent of uh, of the vote, mm-hmm. and it set off a chain reaction across mm-hmm. North America and around the world. Because, as we've pointed out, and I know I've spent a lot of an enormous amount of time talking about America, but the reason is, as we learned early on with Harry, Harry Anslinger, right. in order to garner international support, America spent the 20th century uh, forcing other countries to follow them with Mm -hmm. their drug laws. It's basically, listen, if you want to be able to trade with us, if you want to have good diplomatic relations with us, you need to adopt the same sort of harsh drug laws that we have. So America set the tone around the world for drug laws. Right. And as we've seen, when it started to change in America, it started to change around the world. In this country, as I've mentioned earlier on, it's still illegal mm-hmm. in most of Australia, decriminalised in South Australia, um, but it is starting to change. We, we're starting to pass medical marijuana laws here, and it, it'll be legal at some point. It's it's illegal, but like in places like Queensland, it's not enforced. Mm-hmm. Like they're not gonna they're not gonna bust you for 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 smoking for right. minor. But you, you might get confiscated if they find it. You might get a small fine, but you know they're not gonna go hard. But it's, it's still technically illegal. Now, interesting thing about Dennis Peron, he actually opposed Proposition sixty four in two thousand and sixteen, which ended up passing and allowing recreational cannabis sales in california
2: right I, I just wanted to mention real quick just after proposition 215 passed he actually had to leave the united states because he was getting death threats and other kinds of threats so he actually helped get this through it passes and then he gets harassed to the point where and like you said he does have medical issues he has to actually leave the country for a while um in order to feel safe
1: yeah wow i
2: so getting back he- yeah go ahead sorry
1: I was going to say he he opposed uh, Proposition 64. Do you know why? Uh, No, tell me. I watched some interviews with him, and his reasoning seems to be that he was worried that if it became totally legal, outside commercial forces would come in and would Walmart the weed industry. Right. He, He wanted, and that was part of his argument. Another part of it was there's no such thing As non-medical marijuana.
2: Ah. It's all beneficial.
1: It's all beneficial. No matter why you're taking it. Okay. It's all there's no such thing as recreational. Marijuana uh, usage, it's all medical. It's either physical or mental benefits that you get out of it. Trying to relax. Anyone.
2: I I did want to mention real quick so, obviously, after this passes, it's still, you know, medical marijuana is still against the federal law because federal law supersedes state law. And federal officials were trying to hamper or slow down the progress of medical cannabis within, you know, they were using criminal raids, they were prosecuting uh, civil uh, injunctions, they were threatening to seize. Property for any medical cannabis that was used. And it wasn't until March of 2009 when the federal administrations officially announced that they would no longer try to disrupt medical marijuana, uh, medical marijuana use in California. So uh, we have to wait until Obama's um, administration comes along for them to, you know, even though they had already backed off before 2009, it wasn't officially declared that they would stop trying until March of 2009.
1: A president, of course, who admitted smoking it and inhaling yeah. it, and he said that was the point. <laughs> yes, I inhaled. That was the point. <laughs> but even his administration wasn't completely friendly towards marijuana, and, of course, when Trump got in, uh, they talked about cracking down on it, but now Trump says he's going to make it legal across the country, so who fucking knows? Whatever yeah. whatever he, side of the golden toilet he wakes up on right. determines his policy. Exactly. But, I just want to talk about some of the other pioneers. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the things that I think happened, you know, generally I think it was just it was just time. Mm-hmm. It was enough time and enough people and enough exposure that it became just a, a societal force. Right. Then you had people like Dennis Perron and Brownie Mary and Dr. Todd that really were at the forefront, devoted their lives to the cause, many, many others, Keith Stroop at Normal. Then you got then the, the TV show Weeds. Right. Aired from 2005 to 2012. This Ooh. is obviously after the, the medical marijuana stuff had passed, but starring the very sexy Mary Louise Parker. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: Have you heard of Dr. Dina? No, who is Dr. Dina?
1: She's the real Nancy Botwin, she claims. Um, okay. Not a real doctor but the real Nancy Botwin. So she runs the oldest dispensary in Southern California. She calls herself the (laughs) Princess of Pot, the Queen of Cannabis. Lots of celebrity and politician clients. She's uh, really close friends with Snoop. She claims Snoop was the first person to get her high. Um, (laughs) She set up this dispensary uh, like 20 years ago, and she talks about how um, she walked outside one day Snoop rang her, and you know, she walked outside and saw a big billboard with Mary Louise Parker on it with weeds and thought right. it was about her because she looks a lot like Mary Louise Parker, Dr. Dina. Oh, wow. Um, apparently she and a friend were, had been writing a, a script about her life. One of their customers came in, said he worked in the TV business, give me a look at the script. She did. He never came back. And then next thing she knows there's a TV show based basically oh. on her <laughs> a fictionalized uh. version of her as weeds anyway uh, she's she's a bit crazy I watched a few interviews with her she's a bit crazy but she claims she has a lot of uh, Republican anti marijuana politicians that have been longtime clients of hers. she has to go to their house <laughs> get through uh, get through um, you know security and right. uh, you know deliver because yeah, they their can't come to, to her. Them.
2: Yeah, they can't show up at her doorstep,
1: yeah. Yeah. Lots of celebrity clients and and, and political clients she had. So she's a pioneer. Uh, First woman, I think, to run a marijuana dispensary in California.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Unless you count Brownie Mary and her brownies. So (laughs) let's wrap it up. So this is what I think happened. Okay. Eventually, the fear campaign against marijuana lost it's 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 mystique. The propaganda war basically just fell apart. Right. Everyone has either tried it or knows someone who smokes it, and exactly. those people seem happy when they smoke it. They don't become crazy killers. They don't quit <laughs> their job. They don't become right. crack whores. They just laugh and get on with life. Yeah, they may you know, sit on the couch and, and watch cartoons a little bit more than usual, but so what? They might sit right. there eating breakfast cereal and watching Disney cartoons, but who cares? They're not bad people. So and then there were people like Cheech and Chong and Kevin Smith and Seth Rogan and Snoop and Willie Nelson and Bill Maher and Woody Harrelson and the Beatles and millions of rock stars and hip-hop stars and yeah. comedians like Bill Hicks and George Carlin, it, it just became normalised. Mm, Even when yeah. it was illegal, generations of people grew up admiring people who right. smoked weed, not because they smoked weed, but because of the art that they created and smoked weed, right? They found out they smoked weed, and they thought, well, they're creative, and they hold their shit down, and their relationships, yeah, and their can life, it so be? yeah, can't be all that bad. Right. Bob Dylan famously introduced the Beatles to weed, um, oh, that's right. you know, and nothing bad happened with the Beatles. They 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 changed the world, yeah. So the moral of the story for me in all of this, after thirty two hours of the <laughs> war on drugs, right, is this. The government lied, the media lied, they ignored the science, they ignored the medical profession for reasons that involve building up political power uh, for, for basic racism, mm-hmm. going back to Harry Anslinger and people like that. It was a combination of racism and... Uh, legalized repression of Mexican and African-American voters. Um, and then it just turned into this thing where it was the third rail of American politics along with communism and gun control
2: yeah.
1: and, and crime. You, you had to be seen. You couldn't speak the truth. Right. No one could. It was political suicide to speak the truth. But what happened is, people, individual people, some celebrities, musicians, rock stars, comedians, mm-hmm. um, uh, actors, and but je- but more importantly, just people. Dennis Peron, Brownie Mary, people who made a difference by saying, listen, I don't care what the law is. The law is wrong. The law is immoral. The law is unjust. They use their art and the courage of their convictions to overturn a century of propaganda and fear and discrimination by governments and the media. And that's how we got to where we are today.
2: And unfortunately, it did take time and there were a lot of people's lives that were destroyed in the process. But like you said, uh, people rose up and we eventually got there. We're still getting there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think it's just a matter of time before it's legal throughout this country and probably uh, other countries as well.
1: So that's the end of the War on Drugs series. Uh, thank you to everybody for supporting us and doing that. It's, for me, it's it's been um, a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. But it's also been fascinating. Yeah. I Went into this not really knowing where we were, what we were going to uncover, um, and and absolutely being fascinated by the whole story. So I hope you've enjoyed it. As we've been saying, this is probably the end of our uh, bullshit uh, filter series. I think we'll keep doing the weekly news shows. Um, I might keep throwing in episodes with my kids, unless I spin it off oh, into yeah. a separate series. Um, mm-hmm. But we will be back probably in the new year with something new. I don't know what, um, but a new fourth show that we will yeah. do. If you're up for it, Bubble Boy, are you up for it? A new show? I is.
2: I is because I'm a ninja. I'm a bubble ninja.
1: So if you've got any suggestions, shoot us an email. What should we do next? Um in terms of a new series, uh, um, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll think about it, give us some input. Thank you for your support yep. so far, uh, for those of you that, that did jump on board with the show. Right. We tried something different, um, and we, we seriously appreciate everyone who supported the work, and um, yeah. we'll be in touch. That's Thank us. You. Take care. D-back. Smoke up. Ninja! You got it.